welcome to EPAR Trade Live. Uh, this is the webinar Machining Strategies for Race Engines Part 2, Abrasive Oil, Coolants, and more. Uh, a lot of things we didn't cover uh, last week. We're very grateful to have these two gentlemen back uh, Bob Dolder, a longtime veteran with Sunnen, and uh, then Chuck Lynch uh, with the AERA Director of Technical Services. I'm your host, John Kilroy. I'm Chief of Content and Audience Development for EPAR Trade. And this EPAR Trade Live thing has uh, really been fun. And they've been insightful, they've been educational, and I really appreciate the cooperation and participation we've had from leading companies in the industry, such as Sunnen and leading organizations such as the AERA. Uh, a few quick words about EPAR Trade. Uh, basically, we started over two years ago as a way to source uh, racing products and suppliers online. So quick, easy, very productive, uh, right at your desk. We've got over 25,000 racing organizations around the world uh, online. So we basically digitized the racing industry and made it available to you at your computer. And then we're, we're doing an EPAR Trade Live. And it's just a neat way to kind of get information out there for all of us to share information. And um, it's been really fun and, and it's gaining momentum. And then uh, we're, uh, we're organizing online race industry week uh, this year with the trade shows canceled. EPAR Trade was positioned where we had the resources to just kind of step in, provide a trade show experience, uh, but safe. Um, you'll be able to look at, at 2021 new product introductions on EPAR Trade. We have hundreds of companies signed up already. And then you'll be able to use one Zoom login for over 55 hours of content. And we're gonna have technical webinars on all sorts of subjects in racing. And then we're also going to have uh, some business insight kind of webinars and then just some fun. So Chip Ganassi, Brian Herda, Indianapolis Motor Speedways, Doug Bowles, Daytona International Speedways, Chip Wild, SCCA's Michael Cobb, USAC's Kevin Miller, Formula D's Jim Law, NHRA's Ned Walser, and on and on and on. And they're participating in kind of some panel discussions. And then just for fun, we're gonna have kind of a, happy hour at the end of the day and just kind of grab a beer. We can't sit with each other, but we can grab a beer, have some fun. And we had Linda Vaughn uh, offered to be a part of this and, and we love Linda and it'll be fun to just chat with Linda for an hour. So we're gonna have happy hour with Linda Vaughn. And then Don Perdome said he'd be part of this. So we're gonna have a happy hour with Don Perdome. And uh, we're getting the schedule together uh, this week. We're still banging away at it. And we have uh, one, big announcement that's really in the works. We just got to get the press release approved and we have one more big announcement to make. So one Zoom login takes care of all the content for uh, uh, Online Race Industry Week. Uh, do us a favor, if you like the idea, register earlier rather than later because we want to get an idea how many people are going to be participating. The theme is all together now. If we all want this annual gathering, we'll, we'll get it. We'll, we'll have it on November 30th through December 4th. Uh, quick uh, kind of housekeeping notes, all the webinar attendees are on mute the entire time and not in video, so we don't have any distractions. And we want your questions. So we have a sophisticated audience of professional race engine builders from across the United States and around the world. Uh, so go ahead and be specific and be detailed and, and be complicated. Uh, these guys can handle it. Just at the bottom of the Zoom screen is a chat option and you can type in your questions there. So if you have a burning question right now about the subject matter, uh, type it in now and I'll get it to Bob and Chuck. So uh, uh, it's, it's great to be working with Sunnen. 
And uh, hello again to our longtime son and friends, Bob and Wolf. I, I've known these guys for almost uh, 30 years now. I've been to Sun In. It's just a, a great company, just rock solid. And, and they've been rock solid for 100 years. So number one name in honing, uh, not just in the United States, but around the world. They have like 15 offices around the world. So it's an extraordinary company. And then it's not just a leading company in, in machining, but a leading company in the race industry. So at the PRI show, they've been running the, the uh, engine charity sweepstakes for years now. And a lot of money went to the Petty Family's Victory Junction Gang camp for kids as a result. So it's great to have Sonnen uh, here as part of Epart Trade Live. Great to have Bob Dolder here. He's been in the engine rebuilding industry for 48 years. In the course of his career, he's been a parts counterman, worked in machine shop, taught at a community college, uh, sold machine shop equipment, and has presented numerous seminars and workshops uh, on his own. And I uh, spent the last 21 years of his career working for Sun and Products Company. So it's great to have Bob here. He's retired, but uh, he comes back to do consulting work. And we're glad we can call upon his expertise. And Chuck Lynch has been in the automotive aftermarket for over 30 years. He served uh, in the United States Marine Corps as a service repairman with General Support Maintenance Company, where we rebuilt engines, transmissions, and rotating electric components for fleet service. After leaving uh, duty service, he spent 20 years in production engine rebuilding segment with Jasper Engines and Transmissions. And now he's at uh, AERA, um, but he's been with Rottler as well and uh, Molly Cleveite. So uh, here's kind of my starting question. Uh, Bob, I'll start with you. Just to kind of frame it up at the beginning, and I, I, we have race engine builders, so they kind of know everything, but we hope that there's one or two or three or four nuggets of information that they didn't know. And this, uh, that's all it takes was an hour to make the whole thing worthwhile. So if you can sure. frame it up for me, the idea of braces, oils, and coolants, how important is that subject to a, a race engine builder, Bob? Uh, without a shadow of a doubt, it's uh, it's it's very very important with all the uh, you know rings that are going to go up against that cylinder and need to seat correctly. All those things are very very important. If you have the wrong abrasives, I don't care what machine you have or what tool you have in it, it's not going to work right. Uh, so and again, they all play a role together. Uh, with the whether or not you're using coolant or oil, whether or not you're using uh, a standard conventional abrasive, uh, uh, silicon carbide, aluminum oxide, borzon, or diamond, uh, all those things play a role in how that is going to finish. And remember, when you're doing the finish, that is the final product. That's it. You're not going to do any machining over the top of, of a honing process. So uh, yes, it is without a shadow of a doubt, these, these things are extremely important and we need to talk about, you know, the differences in them and how they work together or they don't work together. All right, we'll get into that. Uh, Chuck, do you want to add anything to that? The, the, the value of abrasives, oils and coolants in a race shop, uh, uh, engine shop? You know, I think Bob really put it out there. You know, it's gotta be a harmonious, uh, you know, agreement between all of the components and you pretty much spell that out. Okay, very good. Uh, here's a question. Now I haven't uh, built race engines, so I'm in over my head, but I've done some homework here. So I, I have some questions for you. Uh, what is a plated abrasive tool and where would they be using an engine today? Bob? 
Uh, first off, a, a plated abrasive tool is a tool that is actually pl plated uh, with, with diamond. And uh, it, it, you don't put it in a holder like you would in a normal tool that we would use in the honing process. Uh, it is designed uh, to be basically a single pass uh, tool, meaning that we set a size and then we can use it multiple times. Uh, it's very, very important that the lubricity is there because of this tool and you don't take a lot of material with this tool either. Uh, if you take too much material, you run the risk of sticking the tool or, and, and causing some damage. Uh, now, where they would be used is uh, in most of our racing engines today, or in a lot of racing engines today, actually not most of them, but some of them, uh, is we use it in the valve guide. And uh, Sunham makes what we call an A tool for that. Now that tool is in fact adjustable, but once it's set to size, you do not want to disturb it unless, unless it, the, the uh, abrasive is starting to wear down. And if that abrasive starts to wear down a little bit, then you can adjust it up. Uh, one thing about a, a, it's called an A tool at Sunnen that, that, uh, that we do do is there are a lot of people out there that actually will make a plated tool but Sonnen pretty much preconditions that tool because when you put this diamond on the tool, it's very, very abrasive and it can cause a lot of tearing motion as versus the plating that tool and conditioning it prior to. And we also recommend after the tool is, is in your hands that it does not hurt to go through and condition it a little bit more before you begin the process. Now, there is one other place that I can tell you that a, uh, that type of tool is used, and that's in the crank tunnel and the cam tunnel of the internal combustion engine. That's used in production. It's normally not, is not used in, in a, uh, a setting like we're talking about here. Uh, now, those tools, in fact, take a lot of pressure and a lot of horsepower. So they go down the line and basically they're hit with two tools, uh, and it's driven with 65 horsepower of motor to drive that tool. Uh, and it's done very quickly with a matter of seconds. Uh, so uh, those are the uh, couple places where a plated tool is used and a little bit of uh, knowledge about a plated tool. That's awesome. Uh, Chuck, did you want to add to that? <clears throat> no, I think it's well covered. Uh, I've actually worked with Bob in the past on the single pass tools for valve guides and so forth. So I think. Uh, he said everything to be said. <laughs> Another question, uh, describe the different types of mineral oils and, and where they would be used. And I'll, I'll switch it around and start with Chuck this time. The, the mineral oils, uh, this is definitely in Bob's wheelhouse, but they are also used in whether you're using a diamond or a CBN abrasive or uh, vitrified. Uh, Oftentimes you see people use synthetic coolants when they're using diamond or CVN, but, but uh, they can be used in both applications. Bob, you wanna expand on? Uh, yeah, sure, Chuck. Uh, first off, uh, mineral oils, uh, again, uh, e even in a diamond application, you can use mineral oil. 
mineral oils, and in the case of sunin, uh, we use extreme high pressure additives in those oils. Now, let me give you just a little example of what that means. Uh, we were in a, uh, in a plant that makes connecting rods in Mexico. And that particular plant was having all kinds of difficulty with uh, uh, losing uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the time that it takes to do the, the, it was taking a longer amount of time. And the fact that they were having difficulty uh, with the tools wearing out quickly and all we did was we went in there and we just added uh, our concentrated version to their oil. Their cycle times picked up almost double, or, or uh, I, I should say half the time that it took with using that additive. Uh, you know, the extreme high pressure additives are, are very, very important. And like I say, we spend a lot of time and effort to make sure that those additives are correct for the application. Uh, so our abrasives will work together with them and work correctly. Uh, to expand upon a little bit uh, about the, uh, uh, the coolants, uh, we use uh, you know, a lot of uh, different uh, uh, rust inhibitors and things of that nature, more so than what uh, you, know, you may buy at a, a less expensive price. The other thing is the fact that, it, they, that both the oils and the coolant will last a lot longer when you buy a higher quality. And you know, it's all down to, uh, to price. Uh, well, you pay more uh, in the price if in fact you're using a cheaper coolant because you gotta use more of it and change it more often. Uh, I, would, uh, I would, again, highly recommend that you look into those factors and then per the application, you know, Sana will always recommend what oil to use or what coolant to use in that application. And, uh, and then uh, how, how, how do you keep track of changing it and keeping the coolant so it's actually working and it's not just dis disintegrating away? Well, as far as changing it goes, you know, you want to uh, you, you want to check and make sure that you've got an excellent uh, the best that you can put a, uh, a, a filtration system in. Make sure that filtration system is good. Uh, one of the things that I've always said to uh, uh, all my customers out there is, you know, there's a paper filter magnetic filtration system that costs a lot of money. I mean, they're they're not cheap. Uh, you can you can spend anywhere from four or five thousand dollars on one of those, clear up to twenty or thirty thousand dollars on that type of filtration system. Uh, now, in the case of a lot of folks that are listening right now. One of the things that I would suggest is I, I always tell my guys when I, I was out there uh, making calls on them, I said, look, you can get a poor man's version of this. And this is the way it works. All right, first off, make sure you got good filters. And secondly, uh, there is a paper bed filter that you can lay over the top of your screen that can catch a lot of the, uh, the debris. And the third thing is I always tell them, I say, you know, take some magnets and put underneath that to pick those, uh, pick those uh, magnetic pieces up and that will keep your filters a lot cleaner. So again, that would be the poor man's version, but it works and it works quite well. Uh, okay, and another question. 
when cylinder honing, a lot of machine shops still use older honing machines. It cannot justify the capital expense to upgrade to a modern machine that can run diamonds correctly. What improvements can be made using conventional abrasives to uh, improve my process? You want to, okay, I'll, I'll start with that one, no problem. Uh, well, first off, uh, it, it's really important that the tool itself is and it doesn't have wear in it. Uh, I just answered a question a few days ago about a customer having, having trouble with tapering in his, in his stones and whatnot. Well, there's a lot of factors that play into that. Uh, first off, you know, an, on an older machine, you could have the U-joints wearing out in the machine, you could have the tool itself with a lot of shuttle in it, shuttle meaning moving back and forth, causing uh, a problem with it. But let's talk about the abrasives themselves. A lot of folks don't realize, you know, you go online, I'm gonna get this great deal on these abrasives and you find out those abrasives are four or five years old. There's actually a date on those abrasives and they can wear out. They can wear out prematurely because of the fact that those abrasives are old. So be very cautious is what I would say about ever buying uh, used abrasives off the internet or anything like that. Be, be very careful. Uh, be, uh, uh, again, uh, check your oil. Uh, you know, if you're using sun abrasives, we, we, we love you for that. It's a good abrasive and you're always gonna get a nice fresh abrasive when you buy from Sunnen. But the other thing is, is they may buy uh, Sunnen abrasives and then they go out and they buy a cheap oil and that cheap oil will make the abrasives go away quick. Uh, so, so you're defeating the purpose of spending the money on this side and forgetting to look at it on this side. You know, you gotta, those two work together. It's really, really important that you, uh, you are cautious when you do that. So uh, anyway, anything to add there, Chuck? Yeah, just to that point, you know, the chemistry of the oil may attack the bond. So then, you know, if that, that abrasive appears to be that it's just fine out of the box, uh, again, where is that bond in its life? So stuff does have a shelf life and the chemistry of the oil may not be compatible. Yeah. Okay. We're getting some questions from chat. So again, uh, open up the chat option and you can type in a question. I'll keep an eye open for them. Some of them seem to be more about race engines that we've gotten versus the machining of them. One question is, are we discussing two and four-stroke engines? I assume it goes to both two-stroke and four-stroke, right? Sure. Yeah. And then uh, somebody asked, uh, thanks for the webinar. When should I use 15-weight uh, 60 in my race engine? And when should I use 1060 in my race engine? What technical aspects should guide my engine oil viscosity? Great choice. So that seems a little bit off topic, huh? Well, but we can, we can quickly answer that and we we did discuss this a little bit last week speed engine speed uh you know and how long is it going to be at maximum duty cycle things of that nature so there if you get more specifically on engine or motor oil uh those topics are directly correlated so the weight of your oil uh and you know if you want to use a synthetic how long is it going to be at that at that temperature? There are some advantageous uh, properties of synthetic and high temperature. You see it in the pro racing world. Uh, but again, what's your desired oil clearance? 
that you intend to run, and then the oil has to match that oil clearance. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, another question, which is better for an old racing engine from the 80s, mineral, synthetic, or uh, semi-synthetic oil, Chuck? So the, the older engines, depending on the, the seals and so forth that you put in there, uh, as far as surface finishes, uh, clearances, whatnot, if you're building a new engine, then you can probably build it to the later oil technologies. If you're just wanting to use something in an older engine that's, hey, I've got a, a muscle car and I get it out periodically, do I want to mix things up by switching to a synthetic when it was a mineral oil? Again, clearances, what kind of seals and so forth were in there because some of the old elastomers, rubber type products don't like some of the additive packages that's really stabilized in more modern engines where they use elastomers or rubber type products that are pretty much impervious to anything they come in contact with. And I think the E85 movement drove a bunch of that and synthetic oil, oils used uh, across the board. And then the fact that there's hundreds of badges of oils out there. So the sealing side of it, they had to go to the extreme and make sure that the, the rubber seals can stand up to whatever oil it seeds. Okay, very good. Uh, get back to machining. When line honing a bimetal crankshaft bore, what abrasives should be used and uh, would you change the process? Uh, yeah. Uh, first off, if you're doing biometal, it depends, uh, you know, is it aluminum or is it in a, in a steel cap or is it aluminum in an iron powder cap? Uh, you need to determine that because the iron powder cap is much harder than what the steel cap is. Uh, what I would do first off is I would in fact change the abrasive. Uh, we use uh, in our normal mandrels at Sun and we use a 150 grit and we use what we call nine hardness. And the, the nine hardness is on the higher scale. And the reason for it is because you're coming in and out of a hole and every time you do that, you resharpen the abrasive on the other end. So you need to be careful with that. So that's why we use such a harder, so much harder stone. Now on a bimetal product, what we need to do is we need to reduce that. Uh, we need to come down to a 280 grit, a little bit finer finish. And we need to also uh, bring our, uh, our hardness factor down some. Now it's going to shear more, but there's less risk then of going in there into that aluminum and, and uh, uh, causing it to be egg shaped. Uh, and that's the big key is we need to uh, we need to be careful with that so we get a round hole. Uh, now, two other ways that we can do that by changing the process. Uh, first off, uh, we want to go and we want to take and move the abrasives so they're actually rather than zero on the abrasives and zero on the uh, the guide shoes. We want those abrasives to start out higher. Uh, because of the way the tool is in fact designed, which is a seven degree negative offset. Uh, so we want to push that abrasive into the harder part or that could become out around a lot harder. Uh, and to do it, we can go start off at 10 thousandths of erasing that abrasives 
And we could go all the way up to 30 thousandths of raising that abrasive until we know that in fact it is acting correctly. Okay, one other thing that we ran into uh, several years ago was when they came out with the aluminum Bach, it was actually some of the first LS9 motors that had iron powder caps on them. Uh, they were very difficult to do and we seemed to try just about everything. We switched the abrasives, uh, we switched the guide shoes to a bronze guide shoe as opposed to the standard guide shoe that we use and nothing seemed to be working right until we just ready to throw our hands up and say we can't do it. We took the block and normally the block lays in the honing machine uh, on, its, on its back where the block is down and the caps are up and we built, built some fixturing to flip that. So we put the heavy weight of the mandrel on the, on the cap as opposed to the block and we were able to make a round hole. So those are just a, some of the things that we can do. Very cool. Okay. Chuck, did you want to add to that? No, I think that's uh, pretty well covered. <laughs> I think so. Uh, another question from the chat. Uh, what about the finish on a nitro NHRA top fuel funny car being changed between rounds? They hone in pits with the ball hone finish. Have you heard that, uh, Bob? Uh, yeah, I, I have heard that. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw that uh, question to Chuck if you don't mind, and then I'll I'll respond after that. Okay. Yeah, sure. What what you don't see is that when they get back to the shop on Monday or Tuesday a lot of those sleeves are going into the machining area and they're actually putting this, the finish that they want. So between rounds, if they didn't hurt the cylinder too bad, that's just more of a cleaning process. Uh, you know, of course you're going to transfer some material from in that brutal environment from the piston. Uh, maybe there's a little ring scuffing or something of that nature. It's just to clean, clean up for next round. But ideally, they control all of that back at the shop. If anybody's walking around in the pits and they see them grinding valves, same deal. They don't do that in at back home. They're on a seat and guide machine, just like most traditional shops would use. And then they just touch up the seat angle or something at the racetrack. And Bob, do you want to add to that? Uh, no, Chuck's right on the money. The biggest thing is to keep that, uh, that valley in there for those engines because you're washing it out with the fuel uh, and you need the oil so it doesn't blow up in the next round. Uh, and, and Chuck's right on the money as far as the brushes. They're, they're, they're strictly to clean it up. And if the cylinders hurt too much, you just pop a new cylinder in it. So, yeah. Here's another question from the audience. Uh, chamfer two strike ports before or after uh, finish home. Bob? On the two-stroke engines, the uh, inlet ports, yeah, you definitely want to give yourself clearance on going in because if you're hitting those sharp edges, an interrupted cut, you can do a lot of damage to your honing and abrasive, the tooling itself. Or So ideally, uh, deburr as much prior than my experience. Yeah. I would uh, only add to that that uh, if you're doing a, uh, a, a cylinder like that, uh, there is abrasives that we make at Sunnan where you basically build a bridge across that. Uh, and there, there are two abrasives close together so they don't go in and out of that hole and break the abrasive. 
Uh, but uh, the chamfering absolutely could not agree with Chuck Moore on that. You needed uh, uh, to uh, chamfer prior to honing. Okay. And then what are things to remember when honing aluminum, pistons, rods, etc., abrasive types and coolants? Bob? Uh, the, uh, the important thing to remember with that is the fact that aluminum is a soft metal and uh, you can use either aluminum oxide as an abrasive or, or you can use a, a silicon carbide. Uh, generally speaking, we're gonna use a softer bond. And what's really, really important in the, in the case of honing any type of aluminum is we do not use a lot of pressure. We keep the feed pressure down. We're taking minimum amounts off. Uh, we need to uh, make sure again that the oil is correct. Okay, we want uh, we want and we want to flush it, and we always want to make sure that we have the correct hardness because to what will happen is the stone will have a tendency, and you'll see the aluminum starting to fill in the stone, and all of a sudden the stone's not working anymore. So uh, need to be very very cautious with that. Uh, you can uh, you can make a real mess by not having the right stone, the right oil, the right feed pressure, the right speed. All those things again come into play. Chuck, just want to check with you. Anything to add? No, I think really speaks to it. You know, the the alloy of the aluminum. You just have. To, I think that you definitely have to know what you're working on and and get some experience with. It. You know, take a look at a piston. Hypo-eutectic, eutectic, hyper-eutectic, the silicon content, they can actually act much different. So just know what product you're working on. Okay. Is there an error that you guys have seen over and over again in race engine building when it comes to abrasive oils and coolants? Like, what have you seen out there and just kind of like, oh no, stop doing that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, run into that uh, quite often, especially first off, you know, if a customer tells me he's having a problem and I'm actually in there, I, I always carried a profilometer with me. And the first thing I did was check it and say, oh, my God, you know, they, they're telling me, uh, well, yeah, I mean, I, I honed out a thousandths and a half with 400 grit. And I said, well, you destroyed everything you created to begin with. <laughs> you know? And you can tell that obviously when you put a profilometer on it. Uh, that that's that's most of the time that the things that you run into is uh, wrong oil. Uh, again, uh, all, all the factors that play into it, including the tools. Uh, you you got to be careful and make sure that you're you're making the correct choices there. And again, you you know we Sonnen has a technical line just like. Uh, Chuck and his technical line. If you run into a problem, that's what we're here for. Uh, we're here to help you. Okay. Uh, Chuck, when it comes to abrasives, oils, and coolants in the machining process, have you seen kind of a, a errors occur out there that you just want to stop it? I think the underestimation of cleanliness, the filtration, the impact of, and, you know, where it doesn't just happen overnight so a lot of times we're we're trying to correct things that took a took a while to build up so that's probably the biggest issue you can really chase yourself uh trying to fix those type of issues but you know with what bob led in with with the, the cleanliness and filtration you know does your filter system have a pressure differential gauge 
uh, are you buying good quality filters? Because think about it, if you're not, that's a variable that you're, you're picking up that oil and you're blasting that abrasive back into your controlled surface. So as you're honing, you can, okay, why is my surface finish all over the place? I'm doing what I'm being told to do, but my surface finish is all over the place. Have a profilometer and uh, really pay attention to filtration, quality of your oil, or if you're using synthetics or something of that nature, your refractometer. Uh, what we tend to do often, uh, speaking from experience, is, oh, well, the volume of my coolant's down, so I'm gonna add the coolant plus water. Well, water evaporates, so you may get too high in your concentration of coolant to water, which can impact the performance. Uh, Bob could speak more to that. As you change the lubricity, how is it gonna impact how the abrasive breaks loose from the bond? Uh, again, now you're chasing your tail. So uh, think about the, that it's not just as simple as, oh, I got the right part number abrasive. Everything should be good. And then, uh, Bob, let's talk about uh, sudden in particular when it comes to the subject matter. So when it comes to, you know, sudden's got the beautiful big machinery, uh, but when it comes to everything else and, and abrasives and oils and coolants, is sudden kind of a one-stop shop for all that? Uh, yeah, we've, we've prided ourselves for years to basically to have everything that you need uh, for, for honing. Uh, you know, we make our own abrasives and there is just several different ways that we can make those abrasives. Uh, you know, we've got chemists that work for us that, that, that know what, ha what has to be done and where to put the bond levels at uh, per the application. Uh, so many different applications. I know over the years, just going into the lab and just seeing piles and piles of different things that we tested and retested, and then something new comes out and we test it again. And to make sure that 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 we are making the correct abrasives and the chemists looking at those additives that we put in our different oils to make sure that they work correctly. Uh, Sunnan prides itself on that. And then we make the machine, we make the tooling, we make the abrasives, and we make a way to measure it. So those four things are important factors, and it's all under our control, under our house. That's great. And then is there anything new in this area from Sunnan that you just want to mention here as far as abrasives and, and oils and coolants? Anything new we should know about? Uh, there's new stuff every single day, John. I mean, you know, who's going to come up, who's going to be the, uh, the engineer that's going to come up with this fancy new material and tell us, oh, you got to hone this. And, you know, we, we really are challenged every day. And, and that could be anywhere from uh, uh, medic, medical equipment, which obviously is very important to, uh, I mean, we make, uh, uh, we do, um, we hone gun rifles. Uh, it's a big, very big business of ours at Sun and Products. And, uh, you know, those are your precision guns that are used by the, uh, uh, by our armed forces. So they're very, very accurate. Uh, you know, the honing process is done after, after the rifling. And uh, again, the, the, and they're coming up with new materials in that as well. So it's every day. And the, the other thing that we, we really pride ourselves on is we right now are the only people in the world that I still know of 
that makes a, a, a machine that does lapping automatically. Uh, that's always been a process in the past where you would lap something by hand and, you know, you get carpal tunnel and all kinds of things from that. Uh, so, but we do may, in fact make a lapping machine for that. And, and then Chuck, is there anything you've seen recently in the area of abrasives, oils, and coolants in the machining process uh, that, that you thought was pretty cool and you, you want to share here? I would say uh, some of the challenges of powder metal products. Uh, I've done a presentation before on, on valve guides and the interest in the ability to hone powder metal valve guides to oversizes or to whatever the standard dimension you're looking for. So those are some pretty interesting, uh, I, I was, we can't really call it an alloy, they're mixtures. Uh, Bob was talking about the uh, alloy or the powder metal caps. You know, so you can put very, very hard particles that you don't put in a traditional alloy. And uh, so seeing that evolve, it's uh, become very common in, in all types of cylinder heads since they're all aluminum. Powder metal products are more what we have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. And then we have uh, more questions kind of about what goes into a race engine. Uh, in a G-force transmission with 420 torque engine, what's the best oil for getting power in a NASCAR? Uh, Chuck, does that ring a bell with you? So those transmissions are much different than what we see in most transmissions. You know, the straight cut gears, floating input shafts, they do things like they've got oilers inside of the transmission for different areas that they know are high wear problems. So they don't run oils that are conventional to what we would run in say a non-G-force transmission. I hope that's what the question is, that it's more about the oil in the transmission itself. Uh, but it's, again, it's, it's drag. The same things that we used to be concerned about with engines, we do, you know, windage trays, look at ways for the return oil to not just pour back on the camshaft and get flung around. Similar concepts with the transmission as well. Put the oil the right amount at the right time at the right volume. So to make a play on what Lake Speed says all the time, couldn't be more correct. He says that often and it resonates and that's what they're doing in transmissions. They even do that in differentials. Uh, racing differentials actually have oil pumps inside of them and they spray the oil where it needs to be. Okay. Here's another question from the audience. Again, just go in the chat option at the bottom of the Zoom screen, type it in. Um, the, the idea of a, a combo sunnen and ball hone, uh, there are guys who do both. What's your take, Bob? Uh, well, if they're ball honing, uh, you know, that's, that's sort of like a brush uh, operation. Uh, and there are guys out there that do it. Uh, again, it, you know, er everybody has, I want to say, you're like chefs. They got a different recipe. This works, don't tell nobody. And all of a sudden, it's all over the place. Uh, you know, if it's working for you, and I've always told my customers this, where they say, I'm doing this, this, and this, and I'm making this much horsepower. Well, great, then stick with it. Don't let me change your mind. You know, don't, you know it's, it's your recipe. Uh, you go ahead and you use that. If you like it, great. Now, if you want to change it around a little bit, you know, we can talk about that. Uh, 
but uh, but yeah, I, I've I've always seen that, especially in race shops, because everybody's looking for that little. Can I get another half a horsepower? You know, by doing this, and yeah. So that's that's how that's how I would answer that question. Yeah, Chuck, anything to add? I agree. Uh, you know, keep two things in mind: repeatability and reproducibility. So. Will that yield a process that's repeatable and reproducible? Uh, that should be your goal every time. If someone has hit on something that works for them, like Bob said, stick with it. Uh, the, the nice thing about modern machines is they take the operator out of a lot of the equation when it's so many strokes, so much pressure, blah, blah, blah. You get into this, okay, I've been using this brush for two days, six months, five years. What about those variability that you've come in or brought into play? So again, is it reproducible? Is it repeatable? Very good. And I wanted to ask a kind of big question about working with both your organizations. And I'll start with Bob. You know, there's one concept of just buying the big machine, getting it in your shop and running it. And that's it. And that's kind of the end of the relationship with the company. But I see Sunnen as kind of a real ally for a race engine builder. So once you buy machinery from Sunnen, you continue to rely on Sunnen either for uh, the abrasives and coolants that we're talking about, uh, maybe continued education. Uh, Sunnen will help you stay current. You bought the machine five years ago, there's something new today, and Sunnen will help keep you informed and up to date. Bob, can you explain Sunnen's process there? Well, uh... Very good question. Thank you. Uh, the um, uh, the biggest thing today is uh, you know there's there's a lot of our machines out there. They've been out there for obviously oh, yeah. a no number of years. Yeah, I've seen a million and, of them visiting. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, and you know people go and they buy a used machine, you know, and then they have problems with it, and they they want us to help them. You know, we've always been very open to trying to help people in any way that we can there. Uh, you know, we have a, we have lab technicians. If it's a if it's a, uh, a technical issue uh, in your honing process, those guys are are usually can get back to you within a day or two and and help you out with that. Uh, now, as far as a uh, a problem with the machine itself, again, uh, you know, we have another uh, group, our our group that uh, that does the machine stuff and the machine repair. And they're willing to help you. Now, keep in mind, though, you know, some of those machines, like, for example, uh, some of the older machines, I mean, they still use, uh, they use a DOS background. And it's, you know, it was written years and years ago. And we all know about computers and what happens to that stuff. We try our best, though, to, you know, help the customer at least be able to find it, even if we can't produce it anymore. Uh, and, I mean, I just had a situation I can tell you about. Uh, where a customer has has one of our older machines and he was looking for for a part, and so I went ahead and I emailed uh, one of our key people out there at Sunnen, and I asked him. I says, "Can we still get this part?" And he he replied with, "No, but this is the spec on the part, and this is where you can get it, or possibly, you know, here's the dimensions. You know, try this." So. Sunnen's always been a company that's been very open to trying to help the customer. If it's got our name on it, you know, we're, we're going to do our best. Yeah, I just think that's really important that you're not just buying the machinery, you're kind of buying a, a partner, 
kind of creating an alliance that's going to last for years uh, yeah. to stay current. And, uh, you know, th thank you for working with everybody like that. And then this webinar is an example of sudden reaching out and, and just trying to solve challenges. And, and Chuck, with the AARA, uh, the AARA has been around for, forever, does a great job, not just in the racing industry, but engine rebuilding in general. Could you uh, explain the AARA and, and how people can kind of benefit from it, especially race engine builders? Education. I would, so AERA has been around since 1922, and, and initially it was about the Automotive Engine Rebuilding Association. And more accurate, today we, we call ourselves the Engine Rebuilder Association because it's everything under the sun. For the, for the race engine world, it's about networking uh, relationships because it's a little more difficult to just post uh, specifications because we have a flagship program called Prosys where we put specifications, we dissect service manuals, and we put it in a format in which a machine shop say, I do 99% of my business is cylinder heads, then I just want to quickly get head specs. But when it comes to the race engine world, everybody, again, they have their recipe. So it's more about an opinion uh, using our tech line. So we have a tech line, we have five techs on, online. Uh, we get communication via email. We are a international association. So, you know, around the clock, we're getting messages for specification requests or why did this fail? Uh, do you have an opinion on where I can get something to make this problem go away? So that's kind of what we do. But again, it's, it's, it's about networking. Uh, a lot of us do it via social media and things of that nature. And we, we participate in that world as well. But the best thing that we can say that we can offer in, in the performance world is just networking. Yeah. So uh, race engine builders out there watching this and then does he join the AERA and go to the website and, and become a member and then he gets the keys to use everything in AERA? Is that how it works? So membership is one fee. And basically once, uh, well, it's, we have different rates based on international and so forth, but yes, membership is a fee and then process pro is a fee. And much like if you were using CAD software or something, there's, there's a, a buy-in amount. And then, you know, once you go over two seats, then we have like an, an unlimited amount of accesses to process. Uh, but again, we're international. So we have everything from, the some of the OE remand facilities, production engine rebuild, uh, custom shops, race shops around the world. So again, it's you know about networking. But uh, any questions are never turned away. Uh, we may pass you on to somebody who else that's a member, and hopefully we stay in the loop, so we've got a better answer the next time ourselves. But we do a tremendous amount of day-to-day uh, -day networking. Yeah, fantastic. Well, uh, we're, we're glad to have uh, ePartray and AERA make this connection today. Uh, here's another question from the audience. Uh, in honing two-stroke port cylinders, we are currently using the P28 and Y mandrels. Are the P mandrels easier to cause a non-true bore using a MBB650 manual machine? Uh, Bob, does that register with you? Uh, yeah. Uh, the 
it really, yeah, with two cycle, there, there are some advantages to that, but I would much prefer them to use a uh, more of a, a Y style uh, abrasive where a, a P, you, they ask about a P28, is that correct? Yes, P28. Yeah, P, the problem with the P28 mandrel is the fact that it only uses one abrasive in it. It's a single stick abrasive, and then there's guide shoes in the bottom that help to keep it stable. Uh, and again, I would much rather you have that bridge that you're building across those ports with abrasives and guide shoes as opposed to that. Uh, some people have had some success with it. Uh, you'd have to have the right abrasives. You'd have to have the right guide shoes. And it's still, it's going to be a challenge. The other problem with that too, with an MB, with, it, with the type of machine that he's using, depending on what kind of chuck he has on it, uh, you know, when you start putting longer mandrels in, uh, you, you not only get out around with it, but, uh, but it also causes a conical run out. And if you have conical run out, what, that hap what happens with that is you're constantly flipping, trying to keep it straight, and it's gonna go out around much easier. So those are the things that I'd look for. Okay. Another question I've always had when it comes to building race engines is that you, you meet the race engine builder and, and the man's a genius. He's worked so hard all of his life to build winning race engines. And, and he's just really a special human being. But when you have a, a shop and you have other people actually a lot of times doing actual work of machining and assembling the engines and the engine builders on the phone all day kind of solving problems, you have to get the people in the shop to really care as much as you do, the race engine builder, and getting things just exactly right. Because with the race engine, you just don't have any fudge factor there. And, and, and Bob, and I'll get to you too, Chuck. Bob, have you seen like best practices, like race engine builders who are just really good at having the whole shop really care as much as he does to get the engine right? Bob, what have you seen out there? Uh, yeah, and, and I mean, you can relate that to any business today, yeah. not just that. Uh, you know, you, you really, you need to, to uh, uh, have everybody on the same team and everybody with the same kind of passion. Uh, that's, you know, hard to find today sometimes. Uh, you know, I, I've seen, I've seen some shops that are like that. And, you know, I, I've been in shops uh, where you have, uh, uh, you know, the, the person that is building that engine and they, it's a do not disturb sign. Leave him alone. Yeah. I'm taking care of this period. Okay. Uh, and then you have a person answering the phone. You know, everybody has their job and their place uh, in that shop. And, uh, you know, it, I, I, what I, the, the thing that I love the most about race shops is the passion that these people have. I mean, they're not millionaires. Uh, they, they don't make the kind of money that, uh, you know, that a doctor or a lawyer makes, obviously, but they have such a passion for their job and such a passion for what they do in building an engine. And it's all about, you know, uh, the one shop I know I was in the one time, it was like they started the dyno up with a new race engine on it and everybody was there, everybody was getting the feeling, you know, and, and just, just little things like that, I think are really, really important today. Uh, I, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. It has to start with the passion because in, in racing, you just can't watch the clock. I mean, you just got to get it done and get it done right. Yeah. And, and Chuck, when it comes to the idea of 
there's the great race engine builder and he knows what to do and he has the passion, but he has to get the whole shop kind of to have that passion. What have you seen in terms of best practices in managing such a thing? Well, <clears throat> to go back from that, that point a little bit is if you're going to try to manage that, you have to look the part. And I think when that, that's how you recruit your customer, but it's also how you recruit your teammate. So if you have a shop that doesn't look like a race shop, it's disorganized and total disarray, that's, that's not really motivating to your team. So you have to, to be that part. And that's how you get a team that is all pulling the rope in the same direction. Uh, if you don't have a good feel when you're in there, you're probably not going to put your best foot forward. Then it's all of a sudden it turns into a job instead of, you know, hey, let's huddle up, let's go for the long ball, you know, let's let's play the part where we're a performance team, let's look performance. Then the management becomes easy. It's a, uh, you know, it's it's difficult to herd chickens. And when, when there's a lot of chaos and people aren't happy, then that's kind of what you're dealing with. I have to fight a lot of fires. But if you're communicating well and we look the part and we invest in ourselves, then it goes much better. And you see all the teams that perform really well, they, they exhibit those traits. Where do you find a, a, a great new person to, to work in the machine shop? What's your best advice there? How, how do you identify the right guy to bring in and, and hopefully keep for years as he gets better and better? Chuck? I actually was recently listening to another podcast and the question came out. Uh, and we, we recently talked about that in one of our podcasts. So we have an outreach with several schools and either they recommend the engine certification that AERA has. So we have the engine professional program. Uh, so it's an online training uh, machinist program. And again, so we have schools that, that use the curriculum or they recommend the curriculum. That definitely helps because, you know, it's always about uh, passion initiative, stick-to-itiveness. So if people will follow through on that program, they're probably interested in the industry. If they complete it, they've got some stick-to-itiveness. Hey, they went to an automotive or some sort of technical school, so they have desire for our industry. So that's definitely putting the right foot forward, um, and we can help in regards to that. And again, uh, I noticed uh, one of our good friends mentioned something in the comments this morning uh, that heads up one of these schools and uh, they're very well involved. Uh, so uh, again, that's, I think that's the greatest thing that we have going for us right now. Uh, that's how you can probably draw the people from different parts of the country because it's real, it's a real challenge to find them in your neighborhood necessarily. Uh, you, know, you look at the guys that are on race teams and so forth. They're kind of from all over the country, but you have to make that known, right? Hey, we're out here. We need help. And uh, we're, we're trying to help it assist in that platform. And Bob, in your years of experience, uh, do you identify young guys, mostly they're guys, come in and, and right away, you know, that, that guy, he gets it. He's always going to get it. He's going to be great. And, and that guy over there, he, he doesn't get it. 
where do you find those guys that get it? Uh, that's a that's a that's a darn good question. I mean, you know, just just being around and seeing uh, the different types of passion again that that, that these people have for the business. Uh, I know uh, I taught at a community college uh, for about twelve years part time, uh, and it was always interesting to see the groups of people that I got in those classes. Uh, you had the ones that just getting there so they can get their credit and graduate and get out. And then you had the ones that were really, really interested. And those were the, those were the young men and women, by the way, uh, that would, uh, would stick around after class and do, do an extra project. And, and you knew that they were headed for, for, a, uh, uh, for a good career in it. And I can, uh, I'll, I'll brag a little bit here and say that a lot of my ex-students uh, ended up at, at different race shops, in particular here in Michigan, where I live. A lot of those people ended up at Roush Racing. So, uh, yeah. Uh, and I, I knew just dealing with them and teaching them, it was like they got the passion, they got the desire. This is what they want to do. So, yeah. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, a long time ago, I was at a meeting with a group of young people and, and talking about opportunities of racing and you know the, the idea of if you walk into a race shop and, and you have questions of well what's your vacation policy here what, what's your uh, medical it, it, you know that's not the guy no. the guy who shows up and i'll sweep the floors whatever it takes to get started i'll do it that's the guy in, in yeah. racing anyways yeah yeah very very true very true we're getting to the end of the hour and we try to keep these things to an hour so everybody can get back to work. Is there any final comment on the idea of machining strategies for race engines? And part two, we've talked about abrasives, coolants, that kind of thing. Any other things to add, Bob, that we haven't talked about? Well, one thing that I'd just like to touch on real quick is, you know, there's a lot of question out there today versus CBN uh, versus uh, uh, versus diamond. And why should I not use diamond? Why should I use CBN or vice versa? Uh, I'd just like to touch on that real quick. First off, diamond, whether it's man-made or it's mined diamond, is carbon. That's what it's made out of. Okay, where CBN is made out, basically made out of borzine or Borzon, I'm sorry, mis mispronounced it. Uh, there is a hardness scale for it. Uh, it's a NOOP, I spell it, it's K-N-O-O-P hardness. And in a diamond, it's 7,200. Just to throw the number out there. Borzon is 4,700. Now, if we look at uh, a cube of ice and the way, if we were to take a cube of ice and throw it on the floor and break it, that's what happens to Borzine, Borzon. Okay, it breaks in several different fragments. When we look at diamond, on the other hand, when it breaks, think of it as a pyramid. It breaks as a pyramid, so it's constantly sharp. Now, if we just take and uh, we, we look at it like that, and we think, wow, that diamond's going to act and tear a lot more than boron is, that's not necessarily true. For this factor, it's the bond material that holds it together and releases it is what makes the difference. In the case of Sunnen, we use what we call either a G or a T bond in our diamond when we're doing internal combustion engines. So it breaks away 
and crosses a sharp uh, uh, point, like again, a pyramid. So therefore, when you're using abrasive to cut down the RVK or RBK, those stay very, as Chuck said earlier, very consistent, okay? As in the case of Borzon, Borzon, again, you know, it, it will work, but it's not as sharp and it doesn't give you quite as good of RPK numbers, RBK numbers, because of the way it's designed. Now there's places for it. Trust me, we've, we've used it. Uh, but again, if you were to just take like an L-bond and put it in diamond, it would take 65, 70 horsepower to make, and all kinds of pressure to make it work. But that's not the kind of material that we're dealing with. And we don't sell machines that have that kind of horsepower. Those are used in production where they're honing carbide and things of that nature sometimes. So at any rate, I wanted to make a clear distinction between those two. And it's not all this and all that. Diamond, in fact, will work and boson will work too. It's both, it's got its place, but there is a difference in the bond and that's where the bit difference really is. Uh, thank you for that. That, that was excellent. Yeah. Thank you. And then Chuck, any final thoughts? We talked about machining strategies, especially the braces, uh, and, you know, coolants. Uh, any final thoughts there? You know, I guess one of the things that I would really speak to, um, I've seen this in a lot of social media lately, and that's understanding kind of GD and T, you know, are, can you really measure what you say you're, you're holding to, uh, you know, get a better, get a good grasp on, on measuring and then do I have the right tools to measure because sometimes not understanding how to measure uh, can be a problem because if we're going on uh, old school presumptions of, you know, for instance, uh, a rudimentary example would be, you know, a, checking a piston clearance with a with a feeler gauge between the, the piston and the cylinder wall. Where do you measure that at? Things of that nature. So if I'm measuring in the wrong location, everything looks good. If I'm measuring the parameter I'm searching for with the wrong tool, uh, it, it can be bad. So as we keep getting closer and closer on tolerances, uh, speaking to oils, you know, where they're looking at certifying zero W16 oils in Japan right now, and the next progression will be zero W8 oils and zero W4, what is that gonna mean for surface finish tolerances that we have to be able to hold? So a crankshaft pin, can you imagine if it's gonna have a zero W4 oil uh, that crankshaft journal has to be extremely smooth and you have to know the geometry well. So uh, understanding where we're probably going to go and what we need to know about geometry, surface finish, that's only going to get tougher on us uh, in the future. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you so much. Again, we can talk to you for another hour and a half, but we're trying to wrap this up in an hour. So uh, thank you, Bob. Thank you, Chuck. And uh, then again, uh, get ready for Online Race Industry Week, November 30th to December 4th. Educational, informational, insightful, profitable for you all that uh, run the business. And, and we're gonna have some fun along the way too. So uh, come on in and join us. Uh, do us a favor, uh, register today so we know you're coming. Just go on to epartrade.com. You'll see right at the top how to register and you'll get one Zoom login for the access for the whole week's content. And it, it, it's gonna be something special. 
Okay, thank you guys, and we'll say thank you for today. Thank you. All right. Bye. Thanks a lot, John. Bye now.